The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to December's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we discuss the new high-end Blu-ray players hitting the market and if we will see real quality improvements in picture. I also speak to Eric Kingdon, Sony's product specialist, about the company's new projectors and Blu-ray players and we look forward to January CES and what we expect will be the big products for 2009. And as always, I'm joined by our home cinema podcast pundits. Uh, this month, we have Graham Goodman. Hi, Graham. Hi again, Phil. Nice to be here again. And also joining us this month is Neil Davidson. Hi, Phil. Good to speak to you again. And uh, this month, we're going to talk about Blu-ray. And uh, coming up, we have an interview with Eric Kingdon, who is the product specialist from Sony, who's going to be telling us all about their new projectors and, more importantly, their high-end Blu-ray player. Now, Neil... We've discussed this in the past. A few companies are now starting to ship some serious Blu-ray products. So other products out there that you're excited to see? Absolutely. We're always excited to see high-end players. One of the things that we've certainly found through um, the systems that we install, and in particular at events uh, like the, the videos you can see on avforums.tv of our high-end home cinema uh, systems, is that there is always, always scope to improve the picture quality. Um, and we, for, for one group, are extremely excited about these new high-end players. And agreement, it, it has taken them a little while, but we've got to remember that there was the whole HD DVD debacle to deal with. And I guess it caught everybody out last January when Toshiba finally threw the, the towel in. So it's only taken them 12 months, but we're finally starting to see some, some decent quality machines. Yes, and, um, oh, I'm very happy to see them as well. Like you said, debacle really... Um, slowed things down and um, well it was self-defeating at the end of the day but uh, um, it was probably the world's worst kept secret that Blu-ray would win but uh, that's where I secretly had my money on even though I did get nervous occasionally but uh, it's nice to see some decent players now that will genuinely offer higher picture performance than the um, famous or infamous PS3 um, the pioneer, the latest pioneers, and this announcement of the latest Sony. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them and uh, you know, give them pride of place in my front room because there's a nice gap waiting for something uh, worthy. And uh, I think it's coming very, very, very shortly. Now, Neil, there's a lot of conversation on the forums, certainly surrounding the PS3. I mean, it's a machine that I use in in my reference system here at the moment, and. I've noticed it's a machine that you guys still use basically because I'm presuming ease of use in in some of your demonstration stuff. But is the PS3 the be-all and end-all when it comes to picture quality? Well, there's there's two devices that we use in our demos. Um, We use the PS3 and we use the Kaleidoscape system for standard def DVD. Now, we use both of those systems because of the convenience um, and the integration that we can do with them into our demo systems. But in fact, in neither case is it the, the ultimate in picture quality. Um, and in fact, a number of the, the, the dealers, the high-end experts um, who came by commented that they wished that they could see uh, our high-end projection systems with, in fact, a slightly better quality transport um, than what we were using. So uh, there are people out there who can certainly um, appreciate the differences between these transports. 
Um, and if you actually see the PlayStation side by side uh, with one of the high-end players, it's clear that the high-end player is producing a better picture. As always, the question is, is the improvement worth the difference in price? That is something that people can only judge for themselves. And I guess, Graham, there will be a lot of people out there who don't want a games machine, so maybe a standalone is the way that this should be going. Yeah, of course. A PlayStation 3 is essentially a games machine that happened to play Blu-rays and load them quite quickly, which is why we use them in demos. But, uh, you know, a standalone player is well worth having. And, you know, for ease of use, it's only got to do one thing, um, and it'll probably make a better job of it. Uh, the latest Pioneer player, you know, the, um, was it BDLX91 and this Sony announcement, um, should give us the performance that we all seek. Now, Neil, one of the other criticisms is that we haven't seen any Blu-ray players, especially standalones, that have been able to handle DVD very well. So is that an area which, which you want to see manufacturers working on in the future? Um, I have to say I'm a little bit ambivalent about that. The important thing for me is that it does Blu-ray flawlessly. And if I can afford one of those high-end players, well, probably I can afford a very high-quality standard def player as well. However, if, as part of getting these players to play Blu-ray discs correctly, they can also do standard def extremely well, well, I'll be happy to clear some space uh, on my shelves, that's for sure. Now, I guess uh, the other thing that we have to bring into this uh, this conversation is the future. Obviously, Blu-ray's yet to catch on in the mainstream, and uh, we're told it's going to be the last optical disc format just because of the wavelength of the lasers used. Um, there certainly won't be any further developments with an optical disc. So where do you guys see things going? And, and I'm going to come to Graham first on this one. Well, we have the uh, fallback position of downloaded content on video on demand. Um, broadband Britain's not really ready for that yet in any serious manner, but uh, it's coming. Um, I have uh, Virgin Media to thank for my 20 meg fiber optic broadband connection that they seem to give me for free or I've probably been paying for it for the last five or six years <laughs> uh, anyway because the price never went down just the speed goes up and um, you know my son is downloading this uh, video on demand content um, while we're chatting so uh, the fact that I can do two things at once now means it uh, has a future but um, there is always the argument that people still like having something physical for their money, something they can touch. Uh, a lot of people are, rightly or wrongly, nervous about downloaded content that uh, you know they never physically can touch. But uh, it's certainly, um, yeah, it's, it's the future. Um, like Neil, I'm sure will agree. Um, by the time you've got several hundred or three or four hundred DVDs and Blu-rays, um, you start running out of places to put them. And uh, hard disk storage is extremely cheap. If the picture quality is up to Blu-ray or slightly better than Blu-ray, um, it has a very rosy future. Um, I just uh, wonder whether people will be a bit greedy and charge you know, over-the-top prices for this sort of downloadable content when it should be cheaper than the disk that it's supposed to replace. Time will tell. Now, Neil, uh, I know you're quite an advocate for uh, the download feature, but 
Are we going to lose in quality if we go to downloads as opposed to uh, an optical disc format? Well, we're all just talking about bits of digital data, ones and zeros at the end of the day. So there should be no difference between downloading and buying an optical disc based, of course, that you are able to to download at that same quality. Um, Of course, it then comes back to how good the player is for the downloaded content um, versus the player for the the, the Blu-ray content, which brings us back to the the start of the argument. We will need a high-end player for downloaded content, um, just as we will also need a high-end player for normal Blu-ray content. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks for your comments there, guys. And uh, we're going to move on now because we've uh, had the opportunity to speak to Eric Kingdom, who is the product specialist at Sony. Uh, We started off talking about their new budget line projector, the HW10. And Eric told me the ethos behind the project. Well, um, basically, the the HW10 um, is our entry-level model in terms of a full HD SXRD-based panel system, so um, what we call silicon crystal reflective display, which is a type of LCOS technology. Our philosophy for that was to use the, if you like, what we cut our teeth on in terms of the first SXRD panel system, which was used in the Qualia 4, to offer a product that, that could be Um, eminently affordable within the marketplace and allow you the kind of visual experience that only an SXRD system can deliver. To do that, we we made some changes to the actual product um, from the original Qualia. We used a uh, a UHP lamp, but we designed a chassis that was extremely quiet in terms of the cooling system and ducting that's involved. But the panel technology is fundamentally the same in terms of its operation, its speed, its switching, and so on. Um, we made sure that the projector, um, you know, you had all the necessary adjustments. So you've got lens shift up and down, side to side. And obviously, naturally, of course, you've got zoom and focus. But those are done manually. And that, of course, saved us quite a bit in terms of motorized um, devices and things like that. So we were able to get the product down to a level where we could truly call it entry level, but um, I wouldn't say it was entry level in terms of performance. In fact, I took it to the Manchester show not so long ago, and I was really delighted with people's reaction to it, Um, making me think that maybe we should have um, sold it to the trade at a higher price because the uh, performance certainly um, outweighed the actual shall we say, the cost the cost performance ratio was very high. Everybody was delighted. So I, I think it will do very well, and certainly the reaction to it has been really good. Um, and then, of course, you know, utilizing the kind of mid-range product, or shall we say the 200, and some of the technology from that, we've now um, developed the 80, which is the uh, new model with various other DSP processing systems, which I believe that you your good self you've had the chance to evaluate yeah we've got the the vw80 here for review and obviously our our members will be able to to read our review of that um in the near future i just want to go back to one point which you mentioned i think it's a very important point eric um when it comes to home projectors and that's the use of the uhp lamp instead of a, a xenon now people might not realize that a xenon lamp's more it's more like natural sunlight isn't it it's more like natural daylight whereas a uhp lamp can't quite reach 
that kind of of, of uh, colour mix. So, what do you put in the lens path to try and correct the UHP um, lamp and its and its energy? Well, you're you're absolutely right. Of course, um, the the, the advantage of the, the higher-priced SXRD models in the range, um, particularly, of course, the Quali, which is the first one, but the 200, um, was the fact that we used a xenon lamp. And as you totally correctly stated, the um, if you like, the RGB characteristic, the spectral characteristic, of it is, is similar to sunlight. Um, we use a 200-watt uh, lamp in the HW10, um, and we can get quite high brightness from it. I think it's about 1,000. The high-wattage lamp um, does actually produce color quite accurately, um, and you get very good red performance, and um, also the actual overall white is very good. Part of the color rendition, I mean, we make the lens to the best level that we can. Um, we, I'm a great personal uh, believer in the quality of any video product, whether it be a camera or a recording system, and certainly a projector, is, is largely down to the lens. Um, I mean, again, going back to the, the 04 model, um, the actual lens, which was available separately, it was you know quite a um, you know quite a high-priced item. But one of the things we can do, of course, is we can um, um, improve performance, uh, such as, for example, noise reduction color quality and enhancement, uh, sharpness and so on, by utilizing a, um, the engine system inside the, in the product, which is performing the, um, the actual image processing, which in the case of the HW10 is uh, what we call Bravia Engine 2, or BE2 for short. I think that it, it really depends um, on a variety of things, but going back to the lens, the, the actual lens that we're using on that model, I believe is, we call it an ARCF. Um, there's so many short terms, I forget them all. I know that, that for a fact we call it the all-range crisp focus lens. It's got very good resolution and also extremely good focusing. So we, we if you like, developed that specifically to... Um, optimize the performance of the HDSXRD panel. And even when you use the, if you like, the corner of the lens by the adjustable lens shift function, you get very good resolution. So the um, overall range control, that's quite good. I think uh, that product offers around about a 1.6 times zoom lens. So you can get quite large images even into limited spaces. And obviously that gives you um, bigger flexibility. In fact, off the top of my head, I think you can fill an 80-inch screen at a focal length of around about maybe 2.44, 2.45 meters. Um, so you get a lot of installation flexibility for the home. Now this brings me on to uh, the other question I want to put to you, Eric, which is um, home projection has always been seen as a niche, but do you think it's now moving into a, a more popular route for people to take? Um, when they're, they're looking at maybe installing a home cinema these days? Yeah, that's a very good question, Phil. Um, and I'm glad you've raised it because I, I've actually been a projector nut and I don't mind admitting it. I'll stand up and raise my hand to that any time for, for many years. Um, and I, so for so long, you know, um, used to use CRTs where you had, um, you know, myriads of adjustments, particularly the full HD models of, of the time, which were really designed to accept high vision inputs. Um, and I think as 
with products like SXRD or products that use that technology and the kind of very cost-effective devices that you can now buy, and moreover, the simplicity of which they can be set up, and the fact that uh, one of the biggest bugbears has been the quietness of them in a room, particularly if they're ceiling mounted, of course, um, where the, the, the actual ceiling can act like a baffle board and um, amplify the noise. I think that they, are, they represent a real viable alternative, and I think the only issue for the user is finding somewhere to have them demonstrated because it's not something you can walk down the high street very easily and just pop into a local store and see one up and running. Yeah. You have to dig around a little bit. But it's well worth it because when you, when you actually get the chance, and this is why I enjoy going so much to shows and talking to other users and other enthusiasts, you get so much of a, a chance to explain how easy it is to integrate a projector whether it be tucked underneath a coffee table, ceiling mounted, or just simply brought out from behind the sofa for the evening. Um, in actual fact, um, you know, mounting a screen in a room is very easy as well. There are dozens of ways you can integrate a screen into a lounge now, such that at the touch of a button or a, you know, the flick of a small switch, it will retract and be hidden. If you want a big screen in a cost-effective um, way, there is nothing like a projector. Flat panel, um, you know, sizes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They, they, they represent even better value year on year. But if you really want a cinematic experience, then there is nothing that beats um, the, the, the overall environment that a projector, a properly set up projector, can create. It, it's just something atmospheric about that size of image. Do you think this also then leads on to the fact that um, a lot of these projectors will be put into rooms that are maybe magnolia in colour, uh, white rooms. Um, <laughs> the, I used to have a house like that. <laughs> well, this, this is one of the problems which certainly comes up on yeah. the forums, and it's one of the questions which gets yeah. asked on the forums quite a bit, is is um, um, am I going to lose performance by putting a projector in, in a room like that? And mm. um, a very good question. Obviously, yeah. you are going to have problems with, with yeah. light reflection and so on. So yeah. what would be your, your advice um, in terms of, well, of putting a projector in a living room? I mean, the, the 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 best way to put a projector in the living room is to really have the room as dark as possible, um, and to also use speakers that are as dark as possible. Because when you think about it, you have, if it's a larger system, you've got large floor-standing enclosures either side of the screen, and they will reflect light. The ceiling as well, you know. Um, but the reality is, of course, we can't live in a black box. Not unless you're lucky enough to dedicate a separate room for it. Um, one of the ways around it, of course, is to use curtaining, um, to use discrete curtaining or discrete dressing on the walls to actually cut down um, you know, large areas of ambient light reflection. So you can keep the, if you like, the energy of, of what you're looking at focused on where it should be, which is on the screen. Um, naturally, the, the, the important thing is to always pick the right screen for the right room. It isn't a question just of the screen you know, and the projector per se, it's, it's the whole installation. And um, there are many good dealers out there that will advise you. And there are many, many good brands as well at all sorts of prices. But, um, I mean, I know one guy, um, and he he had exactly this problem. Um, the uh, His his family, um, his partner wanted the room to stay as is, and uh, they didn't want the colour scheme to change. And it was actually... It was more than magnolia. It was actually just a slight off-white. 
and uh, they decided to use paint that was also reflective. So this kind of washable paint, which is intensely practical if you've got children and family or you might have spillage on the walls or something like that, um, and you can easily wipe it down. And what he did was he uh, he took a fixed um, a fixed frame, so a pressed screen, and he mounted it onto the wall, fixed it onto the wall, and then he dressed the back of it in black. He then uh, erected a pale coloured curtain, um, which actually um, drew over it. So the compromise was you can have the same colour, but actually it's not going to be on a wall, it's actually going to be on a curtain. And then he simply drew the curtain back. So it was almost the same idea as pulling back a screen, um, you know, a, a curtain over a projector screen into cinema. The thing was, it was done so well, uh, it looked like the room were being dressed that way. And there are all sorts of fabrics and materials you can get, um, not necessarily from specialist shops, which you can often find on the internet and so on, that can dress a room and then behind that is to look to how you can black the walls or darken them and so on. Because, you know, um, when it, what's not seen won't hurt you, as it were. Um, and he put, his, he put his projector actually underneath a coffee table. Um, so um, it was rather nicely done. Um, he, this was all a DIY job, which he did quite cost-effectively. Uh, I think um, there are ways around it, but yeah, I mean, if you can do it, the thing you need to do is to control the ambient lighting. Uh, the biggest problem, of course, is your ceiling. Um, depending on how high your screen is relative to that, is what reflection will come off there. Um, there, there are paints and materials and coatings you can use that um, do tend to lessen that to a degree. Um, it's a bit of trial and error and a lot of experimentation you need to do. Yeah, well, it's always interesting uh, to get another point of view, um, and you've certainly backed up a lot of the things that we've been seeing on the forum, so um, that is an interesting point. Before we leave projectors, uh, just one question from myself. Um, you may or may not be aware of how we actually review products here, Eric, but um, we always look at the Rec. 709 HD standard and that displays should be able to meet that HD standard in terms of, of the colour points and the white balance. Mm. Is that something that you take into consideration when you design uh, new products such as projectors, or are you looking at even wider colour gamuts than that? Well, that, that is obviously, um, I mean, you know, all points to you for being professional enough to do that. Um, that's great. Um, yes, we do take that into account. Uh, we do undertake wider colour gamuts as well. Um, and we take the, the whole idea of uh, measurement and that kind of calibration quite seriously. I mean, it, it's, it's something that is an ongoing, interesting discussion about uh, the whole area of calibration and so on, um, whether products should have calibration built into them, um, whether it's best to, be, to have it done separately. You know, there are receivers appearing on the market now which actually offer calibration built into them. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to know what the general feeling is about that. And, um, you know, we're, all, we're always, particularly for us to show something, is please come up and tell us what you think. Do you think we should uh, look to have products with built-in calibration or not? Any feedback you've got like that um, is very, very useful for us. I mean, one of the things that, obviously in terms of backlighting and so on, which obviously affects the gamut and everything, is the emergence, which is you know, not just from Sony, but from other manufacturers, is the emergence of LED 
backlighting and so on, and, and some of the work that Dolby's done in terms of how you can control that lighting uh, or zone, in effect, control the lighting over a wide area, uh, which is quite useful for large panel displays. But overall, yes, we do take it very seriously. Um, it's something that uh, enables us to work to a benchmark of, of, of standards. Well, it's certainly uh, something I think you should be congratulated on. Uh, any manufacturer should be congratulated on uh, actually providing uh, the controls there for calibration because it's one of the things that we do preach at AV forums is to calibrate the display because at the end of the day, we always see the display as the weak point in, in the chain because if you look back at how um, film and TV is produced, it's all produced to SIMT standards right across the board. Yeah. And it's only when you come to the... The display at the end of the chain that things tend to go wrong, and that's because we we tend to have this um, uh, mythology of, of personal preference as to what something should look like. But if you're going for <laughs> if, if you're going for True. accurate though, um, surely the calibration controls should be there for people who want to be looking at getting a, an image as, as accurate as possible. Would you agree with that? I would say that I would say that certainly for some people it's uh, it's it, it, they're, they're, they're definitely going to want it. They're, they, I'd say they'll demand it. Um, a question of whether we can incorporate it into every set or which set we should incorporate it into um, is something that we're looking at right now. Um, it's the kind of thing that I can't promise that we would introduce when we would introduce it or how many models it will be introduced on, but we are taking it very seriously. And, uh, and to be honest with you, personally speaking, it's a kind of hobby horse of mine. So um, um, all I can say is leave it with us and we'll do our best. Well, that's great. So let's leave projectors to one side for the moment and move on to high definition. Now, uh, we're now starting to see uh, Blu-ray products flow in greater numbers these days um, because the... The, the the machines are starting to come through now after the the HD DVD Blu-ray debacle at the end of yeah. uh, the last year there. Um, so you have quite a few models hidden the market at the moment. Maybe you want to tell us a, a little bit about your uh, budget to mid price range. Well, with two, um, I would I would call them an entry level model and a stepper model. Um, they're they're both called BDP, so Blu-ray Disc Player for short, and the entry level model is called the S three fifty. And then the step up is the S550. Now they're both Profile 2 machines, and in fact, from this year, none of our products are anything less. Um, so they have the uh, Ethernet uh, socket at the back for connecting either to a wireless adapter if you want to wirelessly link to your router or, or via a um, you know a normal cable. Um, they're obviously Profile 1.1 by default. So in terms of accessing additional content that Blu-ray is uh, uh, delivering and will deliver a lot, lot more of it and a lot more uh, variety, they're all set. Um, their capability of playing discs back in terms of the audio standards, because there are so many audio options with Blu-ray, are um, completely uniform in the sense that they'll handle everything from what you would call plain vanilla AC3 or basic DTS um, to right the way through to DTS Master Audio and Dolby True HD as well as multi-channel linear PCM. The difference between them is that they will both stream all of that audio codec out um, for external decoding by an AV 
surround sound amplifier receiver or processor. Um, the difference is that the um, 550 can also convert all of that data into linear PCM and therefore stream linear PCM out to a legacy product that perhaps hasn't got the decoding built in. The 350 can do that, but it can't do it for master audio. The computation and number crunching for master audio is quite significant. So one of the ways we were able to make an entry-level model was to um, not have that feature on board. The, so you've got basically the same functionality. In terms of connectability, the difference is 350 has obviously HDMI and the usual con digital connections, but only two-channel analog. The 550 is ideal if you've got perhaps um, a set of amplifiers that you want to use individually, um, or a, a, a what I call a multi-block system where you're using perhaps a main stereo amplifier for left and right and other amplifiers for the rear, because you've analog 7.1 out. Um, you know, the other difference is this 550 comes with a backlit remote control, which is quite neat if you're watching your movies in a darkened room. But in other words, the performance, technical performance and everything else is pretty much the same. So you're really paying to have the legacy connections for 7.1 um, and full internal decoding of linear PCM, which again backs up the legacy angle if you're connecting it to um, a suitably HDMI equipped receiver. Those are the entry-level models. And then, of course, there's the ES model, which is not being reviewed or hasn't been um, effectively out of my office in that sense as yet. Uh, that's called the BDP-S5000 ES. Now, this is uh, the model which we spoke to uh, spoke to you about at IFA um, yeah, in our video production right. there. Yeah. Um, we weren't able to cover it in, in that much detail, so maybe uh, this is a, a, an opportune moment for you to tell our listeners exactly what to expect in the 5000 ES. Well, um, I think, you being a very uh, a very reasonable guy, we should have another podcast about this because this is a, this is a heck of a product. Um, but to give you an overview, um, really the 5000 ES is is um, an example of uh, the audio engineering and video engineering of of the company working very very closely indeed together. Um, when you look at the um, just the physical construction inside the player, you'll see quite clearly the expertise or the passion that's been devoted to each area individually. Um, it was a complete joint effort, and, uh, and I think it's produced a stronger product for that. For example, the chassis um, is uh, it's a mechanical work of art. It's, it's based on a, an SACD player called the XA5400ES. So the actual uh, design of the chassis, the, the, the structure, the rigidity, the, the frames and beams, and the way the chassis is laid out to support the individual parts, transformer, um, power supply sections, boards, digital, and analog, video, and so on, um, has been very, very carefully thought out. Um, the when you look inside the top of it, you'll notice an R-Core transformer, an extremely high-quality um, switch mode power supply. Uh, the audio transformer, um, the R-Core transformer feeds all the audio board separately. The architecture is all uniform. So everything is laid out um, in structurally in a, in, a, in a balanced and um, geometric design. Um, we use a special, what we call a, a little 
pulse transformer for the coaxial audio output. Uh, the power supply is uh, very large. We've used selected components such as filmic capacitors for the audio stage. Um, the video board is completely isolated. The component connections for that are all wide, what we call wide pitch, separated to allow you to use thick gauge cable for long runs. Even things like the HDMI terminal is gold-plated, um, and the analog outputs similarly. Um, we use what's called eccentric, eccentric insulation feet, which is a, a special type of offset fixing system for the special heavy-duty feet that support the weight of the product. I mean, these are all things that you can see if you take a peek inside the top. If you look at it externally, it's very, very, very simple. It's the same styling as the other ES models, so it integrates beautifully with the receiver and, the, for example, the matching SACD player as well. Um, very, very plain, very simple. Uh, the Bikelet Remote Commander gives you all the main functionality that you'll need, but you can obviously control the basic operation from the player. Now, the, um, the actual audio side of it, before we come on to kind of like the heart of the product, the video processing, is um, we really went to town on. Um, we uh, use a special type of advanced current segment DA converter system. And um, uh, that in itself is worth a, a podcast on its own. We used um, special op amplifier, operational amplifiers um, uh, with extremely good high fidelity performance uh, at the output stage. Uh, we used a special jitter elimination circuit which is unique for controlling time axis fluctuations, um, which is a kind of a hybrid digital and analog phase lock loop system uh, to improve the performance there. Video-wise, um, you've got loads of operational controls. Um, and interestingly enough, there was one point about the video processing, which I'll come back to, um, which was to do with the um, the grain reduction circuit that we have on the product, um, what we call a frame uh, grain reduction option. And uh, one person I read somewhere, because I'm an avid reader of the web, um, was saying, well, I hope that, uh, you know, that um, this, this film grain reducer, sorry, film grain reducing circuit um, can be switched off because we don't want everything to be ultra cleaned up. Because, you know, as you know, there are many um, movies out there with a, a natural character. I mean, there's one Blu-ray disc, which I saw quite recently, um, earlier in the year, actually, it was. And it had a, a, a grain laid over it. And it was deliberate. It was the director's intention to give it the character. Um, and you can turn this off, this circuit. So um, all of these kind of, all of the things I'm going to talk to you about in terms of video processing can actually be bypassed or switched off. And I actually adjustable in terms of um, varying control. So I suppose if you go back to the beginning, uh, the, the Blu-ray element of the player, uh, the biggest thing about it is the um, HD reality enhancer circuit. And that means that um, we've developed a, a new 14-bit high-definition LSI for image quality processing. And basically, the um, signal uh, whether it be uh, 8 bit, say 422 image signal input, um, can be um, output as 444 14 bit images. 
by employing uh, what is tantamount to extremely high grade, I call it minutia or uh, minute image analysis technology. All of the signal processing blocks perform each signal process by maintaining 14-bit gradation for, for example, intensity color difference. And then they can be output in a choice of 12, 10, or 8-bit. Um, and you can maintain the quality of the 14-bit original signal by utilizing something called superbit mapping for video. And this is a clever method of, um, shall we say, shifting the quantization noise that comes from down-converting high bit to lower bit to um, a higher frequency where the impact on the signal isn't as perceived. Um, in part of the HD Reality Enhancer circuit, uh, there is um, enhanced processing to rearrange in what we call embedded data or details to improve um, resolution and various other elements of picture quality. It's adjustable. Now, the film grain reducer um, can remove recognizable noise. But again, going back to one of the comments that I picked up on, you can turn that off if you wish. And there's also a smoothing process as well. The upscaling, uh, which I suppose we call it chroma upscaling, or chroma upsampling, sorry, from 422 to 444 is really, really good. You don't get that color bleeding that's uh, noticeable on some images. Um, um, we use, you know, uh, video encoders and uh, a video encoder and DAC system, which uses noise shaping. It's 14-bit video DAC built into for surveillance filtering and so on. The, the actual amplifiers at the output stage for the video side of it are um, what, very high slew rate amplifiers. Um, and they're capable of uh, driving very long cable runs if you want to. And the output is actually capacitor-less, which is quite a tough thing to achieve. Um, and that's important because there are certain um, effects that uh, overshooting effects that can occur on a, an image signal depending on the capacity of the capacitor. We've used um, again for the video side um, special uh, solid state electrolytics. Uh, we used a, a very unique precision clock conditioner which is actually based on a, a um, it's like a voltage controlled crystal oscillator but it, it, it's all integrated into one unit, and um, it was actually based on um, devices that we've learned a lot about from uh, mobile communication systems. Um, even down to the extent of um, component terminals have to have static protection, um, and we've used special gap structure static protection components there. So the, the, the detail. As I say, it really merits perhaps a separate discussion. is is quite remarkable on this product, um, and I'm hoping that uh, when it gets into the marketplace, that people such as your good self um, will enjoy it. But it sounds like a, a fascinating product, and like you say, it's uh, it's obviously something that we could talk for for hours on. Um, but I think we, we've we've covered the main points there, and obviously, I look forward to to getting hold of one. Um, once they're available and, and, and having a good look at it. Um, You're very welcome. Just to, to wrap things up, um, 
Eric, as we're running out of time uh, very quickly here, is uh, the PS3. It's been a, yeah. a, a huge success. Um, lots of our forum members are buying buying them just for BD playback. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's proved to be a very popular and very capable machine. Yeah. But but do you think people are missing out by uh, not going with the standalone machines? Do you think it's maybe time that people look towards the standalones if it's just Blu-ray they're after? I think if you if you want a product that's going to act as an um, an entertainment hub, then uh, and honestly, I would I really would say this, even if I wasn't employed by the company I work for, I cannot think of any other product that more typifies the complete entertainment hub of the PS3. It is really remarkable. Yeah. Um, if you want the best Blu-ray disc quality performance and you want to enjoy that, then I can't think at the moment, um, and I don't, I, please don't take this as an arrogant statement, I can't think of another player I've personally come across or evaluated that could be to BDPS 5000. If you want a machine to enjoy a movie content in high quality, then a standalone player is the way to go. Um, there is always going to be the person that will simply want to watch the movies at home um, I'm lucky that I have a PS3 and it gives me a lot of pleasure um, but when I go into my uh, room and I close the curtains and turn the lights down and fire up the projector I use a standalone player So yeah Eric I, I still use a, a PS3 in, in our review system it, it's, it is a fantastic all round uh, machine um, but as we're seeing more and more of these standalone players do you think that, that BD quality is is going to improve uh, yeah. as we go on i think i think blu-ray disc quality will improve as we go on as we learn more and more more about how to improve the playback systems within the players um i was going to say that uh, somebody asked me why don't you make a blu-ray player that plays sacd um for example and and this this analogy you could apply to any entertainment hub or complete solution product is that when you pack more and more and more things into a product, things that are running often at different clock frequencies require more and more complex circuits to drive them, control them, and manage the jitter elements within them. Then the sound quality ultimately will or can suffer. And therefore... In the case of our ES models, the SACD player and the Blu-ray player, um, if you add it up, not not the retail price, because the retail price is entirely down to the trade. It's up to whatever the um, uh, store that you buy it from sells it for. But in terms of the cost price to us, what it costs to make them, if we added the two together, we couldn't deliver that solution by putting them in one box. We can do it by two separate boxes at the moment. And that's where I think a standalone Blu-ray player, because of its greater simplicity and the fact it isn't tasked with doing so many other entertainment functions, can deliver the edge in terms of Blu-ray picture quality and performance. But we are learning more. I mean, take, for instance, the, the whole idea of the audio element of Blu-ray playback. Um, when you have huge number crunching and computation going on with lossless decoding. Um, you know, theoretically, if the bit, if the actual bit um, depth is the same or the sampling rate and data rate is the same, 
then there's no reason why theoretically lossless decoding shouldn't be the same sound. But we know for a fact that it varies. And why? Well, we know for a fact that, uh, I think personally, it's the number crunching of computation that's going off, which generates so much noise that impacts upon the actual stability of the clock signal and causes jitter. And then you have more and more problems. So ways we can learn how to control that, ways we can minimize that, ways we can purify the ability of the processing uh, will improve the quality. For example, if you take um, Blu-ray video playback element, products like the Spice now show that with high quality image processing, we can actually theoretically improve or build upon the basic building blocks of the uh, digital imaging that is fundamental to the format itself. In other words, moving from 8-bit to 14-bit and how we can get that out in a, in a way that will allow you to enjoy the perception of that quality in a panel that can't deliver, for example, 12-bit. Not all our panels are 10-bit, um, but you have the option of being able to play back what the player's delivering in a, in a compatible output that an 8-bit panel can accept, but still give you the perception of the higher bit, right? So the, the, all of these things, I think, are happening anyway, and as display devices uh, become higher bit rate capable in terms of their display resolution, then Blu-ray will begin to deliver more for you in that way as well. And I guess just to finish off, Eric, very quickly, um, uh, Blu-ray disc, it's, go it's likely going to be the last optical disc format. So how do you see things progressing in the next couple of years? Well, I, th this is a cause of um, a lot of d intense discussion, <laughs> often late at night, <laughs> over a bottle of wine or a cup of coffee or something, <laughs> is what's going to happen and how are people going to buy their content and enjoy it. I'm, I'm a great believer that variety is the spice of life. I don't think that one particular solution for the foreseeable um, future will rule out any other option. What I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is I don't believe that downloading will take over from optical media. I think that it will take a long time to get the data rates fast enough to get the stability and so on and so on. And even when you do have that, you still have those customers and those people that prefer to have the product and hold it in their hand. To have something that they can have, if you like, perceived ownership from, rather than it being simply stored somewhere on a server. So I think that there's always, even if you stay, make a, a level playing field, that there are different ways of getting content and that will continue. And I think our our R&D side of it um, firmly believes that there will be a variety of options for some time. And there is, and, and that variety in itself will mean that products will become uh, even more diverse. Eric Kingdom from uh, Sony, thank you very, very much for joining us today on the AV Forums podcast. Um, it's been an insightful uh, and very interesting discussion, so thank you very much. You're very welcome, and I really, really hope I get the chance to come back and chat with you again.
It's great fun. For daily AV chat. AV chat. Log in to avforums.com. They might be very nice people. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie. Thanks. This is the AV podcast. So, guys, uh, rather interesting discussion here with Eric talking about the, the high-end Blu-ray player. So, uh, I guess that's something that we're definitely going to be looking forward to, to trying out at some stage, Neil. Absolutely, yes. Um as we've said already, uh, there is a place for these high-end players. The, the picture certainly is better. Um, and I, for one, am really looking forward to seeing how much better it can actually get. Well, our thanks to Anik Kingdom for the interview. And before we go, this being the December podcast, next month uh, we're off to CES to see what exactly is new from uh, all the major players in the consumer electronics business and to see where the roadmaps are taking us in the next year or so. So uh, it's always an exciting time of year, Graham. Is there anything that you think is is going to make an appearance this year and, and maybe push the market on? Well, if you invite me to CES, Phil, I'd be more than happy to come, but I have a feeling you didn't mean that. <laughs> so it's, um, back to the equipment, uh, it'd be interesting to see... Um, Blu-ray players with Ethernet ports and uh, being able to be networked and playback content that's stored on hard disks and that be downloaded as well. You can imagine um, a Blu-ray player with the ability to hook up to these services and download to hard disk and play back using the video circuitry from the Blu-ray player might be an interesting way to go. I'm sure that Pioneer and Sony almost have that capability now. And, uh, well, let's see what happens. You know, put a foot in each camp, as they say. And, uh, Neil, from a display point of view, that's certainly an area which we keep a a very close eye on. Lots of talk of LEDs and lasers. So do you think we'll see uh, anything major, any major developments in that area of the market? Well, the laser stuff um, and rear projection is, is moving along nicely. I think it's a little bit too early to to look at projection uh, with LED uh, light sources um, being available. I actually think that'll be next year's uh, CES story. Um, What actually excites me for uh, this year's CES is 3D content. Um, I think you're going to see 3D everywhere, um, and I can't wait to see some real interesting high-quality 3D stuff uh, being made available. Um, and how the players will handle that. Yeah, it, it is an interesting area of the market. It's something where, which was at IFA this year. Uh, Philips had their version. Uh, it was a 42-inch plasma TV that they were showing. It was a, it was a nice little gimmick, but it didn't quite work. And uh, we saw DLP do something similar at last year's CES. So do you think the technology's moved on a bit since then? Well, there's lots of different ways of, of doing 3D with projection. Now... Um, as people will know from the videos, I myself uh, wear glasses. Um, so one of the things that is a big concern for me with 3D is needing to wear glasses. Now, my opinion is that plasma TVs and stuff like that, which can do 3D, are nice. But as you've spotted, Phil, a little bit gimmicky. Um, you really need to be using, again, in my opinion, glasses to really separate the two images that the eyes are seeing. Um, to get that real sharp 3D effect. And what there's actually a lot of talk about at this minute in time is companies, so let's say like Oakley or or the other glasses manufacturers, um, making 3D glasses um, for people like me with prescriptions and so on in it. Now, 
sounds a little bit excessive, I guess, for some people um, until you look at the content that's going to be coming available um, over the next few years. Um, we know, for example, that all new Pixar releases um, are going to be in 3D, um, and I, for one, don't want to be using the, the crappy polarized glasses. I want to be using something that's been made for me and suits my eyes. Um, I'm also interested uh, to see um, the Dolby systems in the home, um, which which work a bit different. They don't have any polarizers or anything like that. They actually work on color differences between the two fields. Um, and again, they can offer incredibly sharp images um, and wonderful 3D. So very, very exciting stuff. But Neil, it, is it actually going to be a mainstream system or, or are we looking at a gimmick, something along the lines of what the D-Box does with its its motion control circuitry and so on? Well, D-Box is fun. Um, it's not my cup of tea, but it is many people's uh, idea of a great thing in a cinema. I think that 3D offers something quite different than, than, than something like D-Box does, and that's mainly because it's being implemented so quickly in commercial cinema. Frankly, the maths don't lie. If you look at the takings for 3D releases, it, it just kills the takings for 2D releases. That tells you that the studios are going to do it more and more. Um, and, of course, we will get to see it in the home more and more. We already have a projector in our range, which is fully 3D ready, and that's that's real 3D uh, that you will see in a cinema rather than, than crappy 3D uh, with coloured glasses. So, yeah, it's it's a real technology. It is the future. The question is, how long will it take to filter down to the mainstream? Personally, I don't think it'll take more than five years. So, Graham, uh, sticking with display devices, 3D is maybe one way that things are going. Uh, also seeing a lot of LED backlighting being used these days. So do you think that that's a viable product for the future? Yeah, I do, actually. I think it's um, an interesting step forward. Um, backlighting for LCDs has always been a problem, and uh, they've worked really hard on uh, the LED concept. And you never know. Uh, next year might be the year where they make a, an LCD screen that uh, well will be as good as a plasma. But, of course, the plasma guys are not sitting still either as your forthcoming review of um, something interesting from Panasonic will no doubt prove. But, um, yeah, I love me plasmas. Uh, LCDs are for the other rooms. Um, but uh, you never know. Next year might be the year where an LCD um, finally comes full circle and uh, does the things that they always said it would do. Now, uh, guys, another thing that, that we keep obviously getting on to manufacturers about all the time is getting displays as accurate as possible out of the box. And, and we've seen some pro <laughs> some some progress in, in, in that way with bodies like THX, who we interviewed last month, um, with their THX mode in there, which, which attempts to get the, the display to a certain standard that, that obviously uh, consumers will be able to switch to and, and get an idea of what an accurate image should be like. I mean, it's obviously going to need calibration anyway, but... We've also seen the pure mode in the plasma screens from Pioneer this year as well, which have been absolutely astounding. So do you think that the, the industry's actually starting to take notice now of, of standards? And can we hope to see more and more of that uh, at this year's CES? Yes. Very simple. Yes. We'll see it more and more. The message is getting out that people are, uh, are looking for that. What people want 
people will get. So the answer is yes. Well, nice and short answer there, Neil. But um, let's hope that that is the case. So that's CES. It's coming up in January. And you can follow the news directly from the show floor as uh, myself and a other will be out there covering the event for the AV Forums and our coverage starts on January the 8th so make sure you tune in to avforums.tv for up to the minute video casts from the show floor so all that's left for me to do is to thank Eric Kingdom for his interview and also Graham Goodburn uh, thank you very much and I uh, hope you have a, a great Christmas Yep, Merry Christmas to everybody, and um, don't forget, Phil, your, your scotch is in the post, so that ticket for CES, I live in hope, <laughs> mate. And also, thank you very much to uh, Neil Davidson for his time. Thanks, Neil, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Phil. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Um, don't worry, I am a tight scotch git, and you will not be getting anything from me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, thanks very much, guys, and uh, thank you to you for listening. We hope you have a great Christmas and New Year. Don't forget to keep up to date with all the latest news from CES on avforums.tv and check out our Movies podcast, which looks back at the best films from 2008 and I look forward to 2009. This is Phil Henderson. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great Christmas and New Year, and we will see you in January. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.